For its entire existence, London has been the location of amazing buildings. Across history, the vast gulf of time that makes up the last 1,000 years or so, stunning architecture has been a hallmark of our beloved city. Today, for example, we gaze at the giant steel and glass sisters on Canary Wharf, the iconic shard, the geodesic pleasantry of the shape of the gherkin. Decades ago, the post office tower and the Lloyd's building grabbed our imagination. Go back further and we marvel at the splendour of the Royal Albert Hall and wonder at the zenith of the Victorian age, the great exhibition hall in Regent's Park. Beautiful buildings have been a part of the iconic fabric of London for as long as there has been a London. And this chapter will talk about two such buildings. Two structures that have come to define London for generations. One of them has changed beyond all recognition from when it was first built, but the other has remained surprisingly constant. One of these buildings has mostly looked the same over the passing of the many centuries and is as eternal in its own way as the city itself. Hi, my name is Saul and this is The Story of London a podcast dedicated to telling the history of London in a linear fashion, each part taking us a little bit further along the winding route of the city through history. And this part sees us pause the mad roller coaster of events as we approach the Norman Conquest just for a minute. We're going to stop time for part of this episode and idle lazily around the year 1054. We'll dawdle for a while in London and gaze at two majestic and important buildings being constructed just down the river from the city. This chapter is about the building of the Abbey of Westminster and the first true palace of Westminster, places that would become in time the centre of power and the location of endless dramas in the centuries ahead. And then we'll need to discuss a rather overlooked elephant in the room, the first great secret these two buildings were to be a witness to, because during this period, Edward the Confessor clearly picked someone to succeed him to become King of England. And it wasn't Harold Godwinson, and it wasn't William of Normandy. Welcome then to chapter 45 of the story of London, The Sacred Island. What would London have been like in the 1050s? It has been five decades in time since we last checked in on it properly. Well, it certainly regained the preeminence it had once held during the Roman era. Geostrategically, it had begun this process of growing in preeminence because it was the key to controlling the nominally English territory to the south and the nominally Danish territory to the north. And this was something that the last few kings of England had certainly utilised. There wasn't a capital of England, but the closest there was would have been Winchester, which was certainly the most important settlement of the old English domain of Wessex. 
and Winchester had been where Edward had been crowned. But London, with its now restored international reputation as the principal port for luxury items coming into England, had elevated itself to an unprecedented level compared to other towns in England. As we discussed some chapters ago, it was the home of coin-making and the monetary system in England, and also the organisational basis of the shipfjord, the vast and powerful English fleet. But London's growing importance was also due to the changing perspective of the monarchs of the English state. Think about it. If your ambition had been to simply control the green fields of England, Winchester was ideally placed. It allowed the heirs of the mythic founder of the West Saxon dynasty, Cedric, gaze out from there onto the focus of their attention. But here in the 11th century, England's ambition and focus was somewhat more global and somewhat more cosmopolitan. As such, they needed to gaze out into the North Sea, and thus London was identified with having a more suitable vista. There's also another reason why Edward the Confessor seemed to prefer London over Winchester. Winchester may well have been the centre of the old Kingdom of Wessex, but it was now, in this era, firmly in the hands of the Anglo-Scandinavians. Canute was buried there. The Godwinsons ruled there. Now, Winchester may have been the centre of Old England, but it was sullied now with the stain of Canute's invasion, occupation and attempted assimilation. Edward wanted somewhere that had remained loyal to the house of Alfred, somewhere that had remained king's land since the day it was formed, and was still pure. London was the ideal candidate in that respect. We begin to see telltale signs that London was becoming more important all the way back in the reign of Harold Hereford. In the 1040s, for example, trees were specifically felled to provide timber to fashion a new waterfront on the region became known as Billingsgate, which improved the customs revenue abilities of the quayside. The houses of merchants were increasingly being built with storage cellars, all the better for storing healthy and profitable surplus goods. Wine, fine wool and silks were being imported in large quantities and they were always able to find ready customers. And London's own native industry supplemented its exporting abilities as a trading post. London was beginning to get crowded. There was infilling, the process of regions becoming more crowded and densely populated in the eastern half of the city. The small size of some of the wards of London reveal that the densest populations were to be found in the areas that faced Billingsgate and London's Bridge, along with the streets leading off from them. This and the area to the west of St Paul's were experiencing population growth and the region outside of the city walls, Aldwych, the old Londonwick, was also becoming increasingly crowded. The whole place was noisy, lively, fetid and busy. As such, finding somewhere close to London but less crowded would be a desirable option for a king. And only about two miles or so downriver lay the humble Thorny Island, an ideal place for a king to be based. 
Tradition says Canute was the first to have constructed somewhere to reside upon the island, giving him a base near the hostile city of London, but not exactly in it. Harold Harefoot had probably had a hall there as well, as London was one of the few places not hostile to him. And on top of this, we know that, arguably since the time of Offer of Mercia, but certainly since the age of Bishop Dunstan, that a monastery had been located also on the island. After all, Harold I of England had been buried within it. Now, it should go without saying that the kings of England almost probably had residences within the walls of London during this period, a bastion that we assume existed based on the records. I mean, Ethelred, Edmund Ironsides and Edward the Confessor had bolted to it at moments of crisis, safe behind London's walls. But royalty likes to gravitate towards places less crowded on the whole. And so Thorny Island, Westminster as it would be known, had become the most desirable place for the king to reside in the city. A writer composing soon after his death said King Edward had favoured the island because it lay near the main channel of the river, quote, which bore abundant merchandise of wares of every kind for sale from the whole world to the city on its banks, unquote. As such, it was an ideal place for Edward to construct a more impressive home upon and in time seek to lavish the monastery next door. There's a mercantile reason behind making a base there as well. If London was becoming the principal port which luxury items were being brought into England, then the king's court was the principal customer of those items. The king, especially if he was all about constructing a palace there, would have wanted to purchase high-quality goods and the finest consumables away from the noise, smells and hectic activity of London itself. Added to that, Thorny Island played well diplomatically. I mean, think about it. If you're some foreign ambassador or dignitary coming to visit the King of England, your boat would take you to the newly constructed and thriving docks at Billingsgate. Alighting there, you'd be placed on a smaller craft and rowed beneath London Bridge. This would mean you'd bypass the towering walls of the city, all noise and activity, and then go round the bend in the river. As you pass that bend, you'd be able to glimpse the suburbs of the old Saxon remnants of the city on one side, and on opposite them, the probable mighty hive of activity that was the Fleet of England, located mostly likely in what would be called Vauxhall and Lambeth, and it would be ships and ship houses, and then before you would be the veritable oasis of Westminster. The power of Mammon, as exemplified in the thriving Entropot, the might of Mars in the shiphouses and fleet headquarters, and the glory of a splendid hall which the king of all this resided within. Yes, in all ways, Thorny Island was ideal for King Edward. Of course, it wasn't enough to build a single palace upon the island. This was the 11th century. A king, especially one who wished to impress foreign visitors, would have to build two such palaces. The first, secular, and to house the king in his court, but the second to the true king, our Lord Jesus Christ. A spiritual palace must be constructed, the king's glory to be elevated in the devotional work to extolt God himself. In the splendor and glory of God's palace would the king also find himself elevated. As such, when Edward decided to fund the rebuilding of Westminster Abbey, 
He was showing kingly virtues and displaying a degree of understanding as to how power must be exercised as a king. It was a huge magnitude greater in terms of investment compared to what Edward had traditionally given the monks on the monastery. Basically, he'd covered their food bills for a while, but this was showing greater confidence on Edward's behalf as a king. As historians, however, we run into a plethora of problems when it comes to accurately dating when exactly Edward began building his twin palaces. We end up having to juggle documents and assess not just their accuracy, but also make back-of-the-envelope calculations as to the speed of it being done. The Abbey was supposedly completed by 1066, just in time for Edward to be buried in it by all accounts. But we have to take on board that many accounts of Edward the Confessor's life were written later, when the king had died and he'd become a saint, and as such, being as they saw him as a saint and all, then a saint would have known when the time of his death was and would have arranged so that everything would be completed just in time, kind of like a minor miracle. And you see that in the opening panel of the Bio Tapestry, where the dead Edward is being led into his new abbey while a worker fixes the weather vane on its roof, phew, just in time. Sources written before Edward was being seen as a saint, however, say the abbey was mostly incomplete by 1066. We don't even know when the work started. There are some documents dating from the 1040s that claim very early on in Edward's reign he began preparatory work, but there's extreme doubt as to the providence of those documents, as it appears they were doctored later to prevent William the Conqueror and the Normans getting hold of stuff. There exists, I'm afraid, no clear written or archaeological evidence to say when work started on Westminster Abbey, but we can generally assume it was probably in the early 1050s. Tradition dictates that Westminster Abbey was based on the Norman monastery of Jumieres, and I myself was fairly sure about that until only a few episodes ago, but deeper reading now seems to suggest that the Norman monastery was actually built around the same time as Westminster Abbey, and the two structures may have shared similar design features, but were not inspired by each other. If anything, the design suggests that Westminster Abbey was probably based on Grand German imperial buildings, such as the cathedrals of Speyer and Hersfeld. Speyer is a particularly infamous example, as it had been started by the Holy Roman Emperor Conrad way back in 1030, but in 1052 it collapsed, and by 1054 there were efforts underway to rebuild it. Speyer shared a characteristic in common with Westminster Abbey that was different from the Abbey at Jumieres, in that it was being constructed to be a dynastic burial place. Conrad's idea was to create a monument for projecting his and his dynasty's line upon Europe, and this was something Edward had clearly also wanted to emulate. Basically, we do not know exactly when work on Westminster Abbey began, and we cannot say what inspired it, and rather than pointing to any one building, it would be best to suggest that it its design captured a moment in time in European architecture, a synthesis of many ideas permeating the time in the region. We know the Abbey was a major work covered in scaffolds for many years with craftsmen and labourers busy toiling upon it and turning Thorny Island into a building site. 
it is worth considering that this was the start of something. Westminster was to basically be a building site for the next few hundred years as kings continually built upon it, turning it into the Westminster we know today. Now, we can guesstimate, based on other churches of similar size, that it was a project that could have taken between 15 and 20 years to complete. So that suggests it could have been finished by the late 1060s to the early 1070s, which means it could have been done by 1066 in principle, but probably wasn't. We know that the king spared little expense on creating this grand structure. Stone was mined from new quarries which were opened up in Reigate, 30 kilometres to the southwest of London, and we can imagine the endless procession of ships and barges bringing stone and wood to the island, offloading and being hauled over to construct this vast church. There are no records of major disasters like we saw at Speyer happening, so we can assume it just grew steadily and slowly. The abbey, however, was only one of two buildings. This was the Palace of God, but there was a palace to the king as well. And as we said a couple of chapters ago, wannabe Bishop Spearhavock of London could well have been in place to help him with this building, making it grand and ornate, and as such that would have put the construction of the king's new palace at around the year 1050 or so. I'm afraid we know little about Edward's palace. A historian writing some centuries later said, quote, the original palace in which King Canute the Dane had lived is said to have burnt down to the ground some 30 years before the conquest. It was rebuilt by Edward the Confessor, and, as we learn from Fitzstephen, was a structure of great strength. Here, as Ingulfus tells us, Edward the Confessor held his court and entertained the high and mighty Duke of Normandy, his own destined successor, when on a visit to England." Unquote. Now, even giving for the passing of time, this suggests that the original hall of Canute was burned down around 1036, so around the time Harold Harefoot was coming to power. But the thing is, we have no records of the hall burning down apart from that, so let's just say it may, it may not have been burnt down, but certainly Edward was rebuilding it. And it was here, by all accounts, Edward liked to live and base his family in. Now, you'd be forgiven for going, wait, King Edward didn't have any kids. What family? And it's here we need to talk about a secret. A secret hidden in plain sight. A secret London at the time would have known well, but has been systematically removed from history. See, King Edward the Confessor had an heir, and an entire family of the next generation of the line of Alfred the Great ready to take over from him. There was no need for Harold Godwinson to take the throne or for William to attack and take the throne. The line of succession was set. England did have an heir in the years leading up to the Norman invasion, and London knew it. How did this come about? Well, after the conflict with the Godwinsons was over, Edward was back with his young Queen Edith. But by now, it's probably reckoned that, barring an actual miracle, Edith would not conceive. What was the purpose of building a huge dynastic burial place in Westminster Abbey if there was to be no dynasty to bury in it? King Edward needed an heir urgently. And it's about now the English state began looking for one. And they found one pretty quick. You see, back in chapter 35, I described the conflict between King Canute of Denmark 
against Edmund Ironsides and the many sieges of London that took place during it. Regular listeners may remember way back then, one of the things Canute did after he took the throne was purge England of the potential claimants to the throne. He disinherited loads, not from any legal precedence other than he won, they lost and he had an army. And it was why King Edward had fled to Normandy as a youth and remained in exile for decades. But Edward, the son of King Aethelred, wasn't the only exile from England. While his brother Edmund Ironsides had died, he had two sons. As I said in that previous chapter, Canute sent them away to Sweden for safekeeping, and also, according to the tales, strict orders that the moment they arrived in Sweden, they were to be murdered. When the boys arrived, however, the Swedish lords charged with the task refused, and he looked after them for a while. A few years passed. Canute became king of Denmark. Then Canute became king of Norway, and then Canute became a king of a chunk of Sweden. The boy's protector was now in the position where Canute's influence was much closer than it had been previously. He could be forced to kill the two boys. So being the resourceful Viking that he was, tradition says, the Swedish guy sent the two boys to some Viking friends of his, way beyond the reach of this wannabe Danish emperor. He sent them to the Viking kingdom of Kiev. Here, the two boys grew up under the protection of a famed king called Yuroslav the Wise. He was a Viking's kind of Viking. He'd been one of the people who'd ordered Viking attacks on Byzantium itself. The boys grew up on the plains of Ukraine, miles from their native land, and they grew up in the company of other exiles from all over Europe. Ukraine was kind of the place exiles ended up, it seems. Harald Hadrada had ended up with Yuroslav the Wise for a while. And another one of these exiles, living with the King Yuroslav the Wise, was a prince from Hungary called Andrew. And when he decided he was old enough and tough enough to return to his homeland and take back the throne, the two sons of Edmund Ironside came with him and helped him and stayed. And the oldest of the two, a man called Edward, had a bunch of kids, to be precise, two daughters and then a baby boy called Edgar. And it will be this Edgar we're going to be focusing upon. So he was born in Hungary, and he grew up there during a time of war between the Hungarians and the Holy Roman Empire. His father, also called Edward, like the king, but known as Edward the Exile, was an exiled member of the lost royal family of England. And his mother, well, we have no idea as to the origins of his mother. I wish I could say this was a minor matter. Seriously, there's a whole bunch of books and articles written about where Edgar's mother came from. Some say she was a Hungarian, others a German. Some say she was Swedish and others Ukrainian. It actually gets very heated with theories being thrown around like crazy. Me, I'm going to say his mother was probably a Ukrainian Rus. And go one further and suggest she could have been one of the daughters of Yuroslav the Wise. I mean, it doesn't matter, really, unless you're Scottish. Because if you're Scottish, it does become important, but only later on. Anyway, back to Edgar. His father was an exiled English prince, his mother possibly a Ukrainian Viking princess. Got that? Awesome. So Edgar was looking at a life to be spent in Hungary when his father got word from England. 
Edward the Confessor was looking for members of his family. He needed an heir. And Edgar's father, Edward, was the only one of Edmund Ironside's children still alive and was technically next in line. Well, almost next in line. See, Edward had done some stuff alongside Godwin of Essex when he'd taken to the throne that needed to be sorted out. Back when he'd taken power, he had claimed the throne based on the fact that he was the oldest and only surviving son of King Ethelred Unred, right? All good. But you may remember that when Ethelred Unred had died, his older son, Edmund Ironsides, had taken the throne, which technically meant his sons have always been next in line for the title of King of England. So... King Edward the Confessor, when he'd taken the throne, basically came up with a bunch of propaganda which claimed that Edmund Ardsides had sworn an oath to young Edward to be king and basically disinherited Edmund Ironside's side of the family. But now not having any sons of his own to follow him, Edward was going to have to change things about. And this explains why he was delighted to discover his cousin was still alive and invited him to return home. Aged only five, young Edgar and his arguably Ukrainian princess mother and his two older sisters and his father began their journey back to a home he'd only ever heard of in tales told by his father. England, Wessex, the far west of Europe. On the way there, no doubt his father would have heard about the circumstances of his recall what he was walking into. Maybe he would have told young Edgar. Probably didn't, which was bad, as Edgar was walking back into an alien world filled with political tension. While the Godwinsons and King Edward had reconciled, the recall of Edward the Exile seems like a bit of a Hail Mary play by Edward. But while bringing over Prince, who'd been exiled out of England for decades, could have been a risk. It was all King Edward had. Added to that, there was a similarity between Edward the King and his cousin Edward the Exile. Both had been blown like Sisseldown, hither and thither across Europe by Canute. Both had survived and thrived. In some ways, King Edward's cousin had thrived better. He'd made a name for himself in Hungary. He was possibly married to a Ukrainian princess. He could well have had just the right temperament to run England. Of course, he'd left England as a baby and he would have to be schooled in the intricacies of his lost homeland. Not just the language, but the traditions, the laws, the culture itself. Edward the Exile had grown up amidst the Swedes, the Kiev Rush, and the Hungarians, which, you know, said he was good at adaptation, but it was still a lot to ask of him. Yet to the native English powers that be, such as the Godwinsons, there were some advantages to Edward the Exile becoming king. For one, he would automatically be dependent upon loyal and trusted retainers to help him run the country. He would be a stranger in a strange land. And Godwin of Wessex had provided his family with the template of how to rise in power, become invaluable to a king who was a stranger in a strange land. Godwin had done it for Canute, Edith was doing it for Edward, so Godwin's son Harold could do this for Edward the Exile. And Edward the Exile would also not have a bunch of nobles living locally who he grew up with 
turning up with no warning to interfere in English politics, like Edward did with his bloody Normans. Edward the Exile's allies were all based all the way over in Hungary and Ukraine. From Godwinson's point of view, this was a result, and this is probably why Harold Godwinson had been part of the diplomatic effort to get Edward the Exile back to England. His arrival would secure an heir for the throne. And remember, this was still only a backup plan, conceivably, you know, King Edward and Queenies could conceivably conceive. And that's what young Edgar's father was returning for, to be named heir to the throne of England, an inheritance which would then pass to his son. This boy, called Edgar, was leaving Hungary, the son of an exiled noble from a foreign land, and was arriving in direct line for succession to the throne of England. Talk about life-changing moments. Edgar arrived in the ancestral homelands in 1057, and no sooner had he stepped foot on English soil than life threw one of its many curveballs at him. His father, Edward the Exile, alas, had found the journey too taxing, and only a few days after he arrived, and before he'd even met King Edward the Confessor, he became suddenly sick and died. This was a horrific tragedy and threw out Edward the Confessor's plans into a complete spin. Still, he did have a male heir, R. Edgar. And so the process of legitimising Edgar, the small boy, as the next King of England began. And it began with a huge symbolic gesture. Edward the Exile was dead. And the King of England oversaw his burial and the people of London would have witnessed this tragic ceremony because Edward the Exile was buried in St. Paul's. And every resident of London at the time would have known exactly what this meant. Edmund Ironsides, the great warrior who had liberated London and fought for the city, when he died, he'd been buried in Glastonbury Abbey. As his son, Edward the Exile, could be expected to be buried over in Glastonbury beside his father. But he wasn't. He was buried in St. Paul's, the burial place of King Ethelred Unred. Edward the Confessor was clearly sending out a signal that Edward the Exile had been adopted into his branch of the royal family. While we have no accounts of the funeral, its location and the symbology tells us it was probably a full state funeral. The heir of England was dead, which meant his son became the new heir. Suddenly, young Edgar wasn't now just returned to his father's homeland. He was now formally a big deal in his father's homeland. He was granted the designation Edgar Etherling, which means literally throne-worthy and was a title almost exclusively reserved for the sons of kings. Aethelings actually had a legal status in most laws and decrees of the time. Their legal rank in England placed them equal to archbishops, and by doing this, Edward had made the boy the equal to the archbishops of York and Canterbury, just below the king himself in rank. Young Edgar Aetheling was now designated the next in line. He, his mother, and his older sisters were now under the protection of Edward the Confessor. But strangely, he disappears back into the shadows of history at this point. 
There is little trace of Edgar at this time. And this is an accidental. In fact, it's deliberate. Because in the years that followed, the future kings of England systematically erased Edgar's claim from the history books. That's a big claim, so allow me to back it up. One of the most important historical documents of these eras that we're talking about is the witness rolls. Every time a king of England, any of the kings we've mentioned, would write a proclamation or make a law, he would get people to witness it. These witness rolls allowed us to see who were the great and good in English society at the time, and we gather huge amounts of evidence from witness rolls. They're also really good for telling us who was in favour with the king and who's not. We could see people's names raise up the witness rolls or drop out of the witness rolls, and we can infer an awful lot from that. And here's our problem. We know that there exists not a single witness roll of King Edward the Confessor from the year 1061 onwards that was free from the suspicion of tampering and doctoring. All of them. For me, it was to specifically remove Edgar's name and position from those records. And we should understand that while there was no real English version of the ceremony of adoption around, calling him Aetheling was the closest 11th century England had. And Edward did more than just cement that claim legally. We know that sometime around 1063 or 1064, when a new abbot was elevated in Winchester, the records of the people who attended included a named trio, Edward, Edith and Edgar, presented and recorded as a single unit. And this is important because it mirrored a previous royal trio from a few years earlier at an identical event. Canute, Emma and Hartha Canute had recorded the names like that at a ceremony in Bremen and Hartha Canute was being included in the three to kind of nominate him as the future heir of Denmark. We know the king and his queen, Edith, surrounded themselves with young children. You had Edgar and his two older sisters, but you also had young Harold, who was the son of Earl Ralph. All of these were King Edward's nieces and nephews, or grandnieces and nephews. Any onlooker could see that while the line was not linear, the bloodline of Alfred the Great was not dying out. Indeed, if Edward the Confessor was creating a mighty abbey to be a burial place for his dynasty in Westminster, anyone could clearly see the dynasty was alive and well and strong, and he and Edith were surrounded by family. It was in this atmosphere of surrogate love that Edgar probably learned the language of his new land, as his father's knowledge apparently had been barely comprehensible, apparently. Yet, as... King Edward began to approach the end of his life and construct his mighty palace. His thoughts turned ever inwards. During the 1040s, Edward had commanded or ordered out the English fleet almost every year. In the 1050s, he never did. London would have seen the physical manifestation of this inward-looking gaze by the building of the majestic new structures down on Thorny Island. We do not know the exact relationship between Edgar and Edward. 
because we do know in 1066, two men would seize the throne from this boy and both men would go out of their way to erase his claim and his role in English politics. But as such, we cannot, simply cannot discount the idea that London would have witnessed Edgar accompanying Edward and Edith on royal occasions. We have to retain a very strong probability that Edgar had been formally adopted in some ceremony, that he'd been granted land and title, that he'd been promised royal estates, and that there had been somewhere an oath ceremony where the lords of the land, including Harold Godwinson, had sworn allegiance to him as to the heir to the throne. And in fact, we do have a record of just such a ceremony taking place in 1062, where Harold and the great and the good of England swore to uphold the claim of Edward's, quote, Prompos, unquote, his great nephew. So there, on the sacred island of Westminster, the king is creating for himself a palace of God and a palace of his dynasty and securing the dynasty around him. The succession was secure. So, what went wrong? <laughs> well, that's what we're going to be looking in chapter 46. Thanks for listening. I know I've dropped four chapters in the last week. That's an awful lot of material. Uh, but I just wanted to get through the messy period leading up to the Norman invasion. Back to our weekly scheduled uh, podcast now. So we'll be back next Wednesday with chapter 46 of the Story of London. I hope you're all well. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Bye.